Good morning. How are we? Awesome. I get some nice. You're gonna get some nice little humming. Gene's gonna fix us. Yeah. Yeah. So good morning. We are, as you know, in a series called Scent. Next week we hit the halfway point, so we're gonna transition at that point, but we're in this series um, where we are trying to rediscover the vision of the church. We're trying to uncover and rediscover and remind ourselves that we are called to be sent people. Um, And so the passage that we're looking at today is all about this. Um, So we're we're really going to kind of walk into this prime illustration of the church as sent people. Uh, Before we jump into the passage though, you know, look in Acts are geographically organized. So I've mentioned this a couple of times. When you go through the book of, of Luke, there's a geographical progression of Jesus' ministry heading toward Jerusalem. When you hit the, the book of Acts, there's this geographical progression from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Uh, and then from this part of the book onwards, we start looking at lots of Paul's journeys. So he's traveling around all over the place. So I just want to stick up a couple of maps just to remind us because I don't want to assume that when I start talking about these places that everyone has in mind what we're looking at. So the first one that a lot of people don't know where Israel actually is. So let's just stick up the world map and remind ourselves that this whole book of the Bible centers around this tiny, tiny, tiny little piece of land right in the middle of the globe. I think it's interesting that for so many thousands of years there's been war and fighting and all sorts of things around this tiny teensy little bit of land right there in the middle. So, so we're all the way on the other side of the world in Israel. That's where we're set. Um, in that tiny little piece of land right on the Mediterranean Sea, um, where we're jumping into today and, and next week is what is commonly called Paul's first missionary journey. So if you look here, it just gives you a little idea of, of where they are at in their journeying. So next, next slide, please. Uh, nope. There's, the, there's one missing. Go back one. Nope. Did I delete one? It says Asia Minor, and it says Paul's first ministry. There we go. Thanks, Carrie. Uh, so you've got the word Syria on the bottom right. Israel is just down below this. So we've moved from Jerusalem. We've moved north and a little bit south at the same time into Judea and Samaria. And now the gospel is heading up. We've been in Antioch in Syria. And now the gospel is starting to spread outside of Israel and into what is essentially, it says Asia Minor, we're really talking about what is modern day Europe. Um, and so this is, is where the events are taking place today and next week. And I just wanted you to have this in mind because all of a sudden, Paul and the rest of the book of Acts just starts throwing place names all over the place like we are from that area and know where the places are. So you can see we're about to hit Antioch, Seleucia. We're going to head down into the island of Cyprus. We're going to head up into Asia Minor. He's going to travel around a little bit and then he's going to head all the way back to where he started. So I just wanted you to have that in mind. You don't need to know all the places. There's going to be no quiz at the end of the day. Um, But I wanted you to have a framework that there's an intentional journey happening um, in this part of what is... uh, modern-day Europe. 
So we're going to jump into Acts chapter 13, which is where we're at today. And I have put in here, uh, as we go through the passage, I've stuck all the place names in orange just to remind us that he's following a geographical progression. And so you'll see them as they come up. No need to know them. No quiz at the end. Um, but let's read through this uh, and then we'll, we'll highlight as we go. So this is Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, who we've already heard about, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So get that. We're in this story where Herod has been persecuting Christians. This guy that's come to faith is one of his childhood friends. Isn't that crazy? Uh, Just that little detail thrown in there. He was brought up with Herod. Uh, And we've also got Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John, John Mark, was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. So I'm going to throw up another picture here. And and the reason for doing this is just, I don't know about you, but when I start reading the Bible and I start hearing these places that I've never been to, they kind of feel like fictional places. So I just want to put up a picture of Paphos here. Um, It's a real place in Cyprus, brick and mortar. If you look at the picture, you might want to plan your next vacation here. Um, I also put it here because we're in the middle of COVID and none of us are getting to travel where we want to go. And so just for a minute, we can pretend we're in Paphos looking out over the Mediterranean. But, But these are real places that you can go to today. You can stand in the ruins. You can be where Paul was. Um, real places. So just remember, this is not like fake fiction storyline. This is real historic geographic narrative. Other thing that's just interesting to know about this place, Paphos, in terms of Cyprus and in terms of Europe, was a very famous and significant city um, because it was believed to be the birthplace of Aphrodite, who got kind of mixed and syncretized with Venus. So Venus is the Roman god, Aphrodite is the Greek god who comes from another like Semitic, well not Semitic, uh, Syrophoenician god that existed before that. So they're all kind of blended together into this person. Um, But what you want to know is this Greek goddess, Aphrodite or Venus, was associated with love, beauty, pleasure, passion, and procreation. So they have all of these uh, ideas that, that are taken from Aphrodite and taken from Venus and kind of blended together. This gal in this city, this goddess, was known as the patron goddess of prostitutes. So this is the city that Paul is arriving in where they have a goddess who oversees and protects the prostitutes of the city. You're like, okay, interesting. Uh, Paul's going there first. Exciting place. Um, So this is a place that's dark and messy. Uh, Sexual immorality is rife. Everything about this place is designed to worshiping and celebrating this goddess Aphrodite or Venus. So this is where they're at. So back to Acts 13. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer. 
You hear the contradiction there? A Jewish person of God's holy people who's a sorcerer that's condemned by the Jewish law, right? So this guy's mixed up and not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Um, his name is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of Yeshua, um, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. So he is the attendant of an important government official in this area. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So are you surprised that we're in Paphos, this demonic stronghold for this person, Aphrodite, who's celebrating carnality and everything against God, and in here, their government leader, his right-hand influencer, is this other demonic figure <laughs> who is uh, trying, it says here, doing everything he can to turn him away from the faith. So this is a, a dark uh, and, and warring place. Uh, as it goes on in verse 9, then Saul, who was also called Paul. I've got lots of little, like, there's lots of little parts in here that you just got to comment on. He's setting up an important thing here. Saul, who was also called Paul. Don't let me hear you say Saul, who was converted and became Paul, because that's not true. It's common in their culture to have two names. So Saul is his Hebrew name for when he's in Israel, uh, connected to his heritage as one of the people of Israel. Paul is the name that he uses when he travels into uh, Greco-Roman culture, where he's more accessible as Paul. So these are two names that he would have been given. God didn't change his name at this point. So they're setting up here. This is Paul, who's also, or Saul, who's also called Paul. He's got two names. But what we're about to see happen is he's about to ditch the name Saul. Why? Because they're about to engage in this Gentile mission outside of Israel. And so he's going to go forward carrying the name that makes more sense in the culture that he's in. I think it's interesting. Saul really means one who hears or listens to God. Um, Paul means one who's lowly or humble. And when you think about the journey he's been on, was he one who listened to God or was he one who was humbled? <laughs> so I think it's interesting too that, that that's going on in here. So Paul, who was also called Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil. Say that's your neighbor. And an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Man, those are harsh words. I can think of a few people that we might want to say those to. But um, <laughs> immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So this moment, like, we can look at this story and go, this is a horrible moment. You've got this guy who's just doing his thing. Paul comes in and all of a sudden, like, rebukes him, and then he's made blind. And you're like, that seems kind of mean of Paul, right? Judgmental of this, this God, oh God's such a judging God. There, there are two parts about this that I think we have to have in mind. This is an act of power. So remember what Paphos is. The goddess, the ruling deity of this country is Epaphrodite, the, the patron saint of prostitution. So this is the person that rules in this place. Their government official, his, his influencer, is this demonic sorcerer who claims to be Jesus but is walking completely against the way of God. They're setting up a battle. 
right? So first of all, this moment is a demonstration of the power of God. As, as Paul uh, rebukes this man and the mist and darkness appears and he goes blind, it is first of all showing the people, showing the proconsul that the Holy Spirit that I'm telling you about has more power than the gods that you're worshiping. So this is an act that demonstrates the power of God over the powers of darkness in the world. This is a demonstration of victory over darkness. The other side of this, though, is an act of grace. Why is this an act of grace? Do you remember what happened in Paul's story? Acts chapter 9. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. He'd been knocked off his horse, seen this bright light, heard this voice. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Paul had this moment, he was walking in opposition to God. He has this moment where he has a confrontation with Jesus that results in blindness. And during his three days of blindness, what happens? His spiritual eyes are open and he repents of the wrong way he was walking and becomes God's instrument. So I think this moment where, where Elemas is struck with blindness is a moment of grace. It's an opportunity like Solly as a choice. Am I gonna stay in my blindness or am I gonna allow my spiritual eyes to be opened uh, so that I can become God's instrument moving forward? And if you can imagine this man has the ear of the proconsul, could you imagine what would happen if he truly became God's instrument, guiding this hungry uh, government official who is seeking the truth? Could you imagine what would happen to that area? And uh, anyway, back into... <laughs> Chapter 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia. Another little side note, we started with set aside Barnabas and Saul and send them out. We had this moment, remember Saul, who's also called Paul. This is the moment in the story where everything flips. Paul now takes the lead. God is doing something. Barnabas, this wise, mature encourager within the church, has the humility to step back and allow Paul to take the lead here. So from this point on in Acts Gospel, Paul's name always comes first. He's the lead character in the story. So from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John, John Mark, left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for these people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, so we're about to get a long sermon from Paul, and I'll let you know, this is abbreviated already, so it was longer. Um, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king and he gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God can testify concerning David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? 
I am not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy uh, to untie. That's John the Baptist. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it's written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decays. Quoting scripture left, right, and center. Now when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He died. He was buried and his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. We've got a little bit more. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So I want to just pause and give you a summary of that sermon. Because I just think it's important that we read all of the text. But I have a summary in here. There's five points that Paul is making in this sermon to the people. And I just want us to understand the context that he's, he's preaching. And it's really simple. So number one, God chose Israel. This should be slide 21b. God chose Israel. So everything he's saying, God chose these people. He set them apart. He begins walking through the history. He's talking to some loosely Jewish people and explaining the common history. Um, Number two, God appointed David, verse 22. God chose and appointed David to be the king that would rule over. Number three, Jesus fulfills God's promises to David. So he's saying God chose Israel, God appointed David to lead, Jesus is the one fulfilling all of these promises. Number four, Jesus' death and resurrection fulfilled the law and the prophets. So he goes through all of this content, all of the law and the prophets, everything that was said uh, was fulfilled by Jesus' death and resurrection. And then he ends his sermon with point five, don't miss out on the salvation that comes through Jesus. And he declares, that's the wrong slide, he declares, (laughs) I can see you trying to scribble it down, um, go all the way back to 21. Uh, okay, it's not there. 
So I'll, I'll just speak it and we can just pause for now. Um, God, so God chose Israel. God appointed David. Jesus fulfills God's promises to Israel. Jesus' death and resurrection fulfill the law and the prophets. And then he ends, don't miss out on the forgiveness and the salvation and the justification that comes through Jesus. Um, Andrew started with that quote from, from Philemon, that the miracle of God offering forgiveness, our sin being credited to his account, him wiping the slate clean and credit and righteousness to us. Dave, Dave prayed at the beginning that prayer of, of the miracle of forgiveness poured out. So I, I, I do that summary just to say, you know, like it's lots of content. At the end of the day, I said this before, every time we go through Acts and they're preaching and they're confronting, the message is the same. God created, God chose Israel, God appointed David, Jesus fulfilled the promises, his resurrection fulfilled all of these truths in scripture. Don't miss out on what's been offered. That is the message that is constantly being brought by the church. That is not the message that we are known by today. <laughs> right? This message convicts people, it inspires persecution. Uh, they are beaten, they are murdered for this message. So we need to make sure as the church, when we're out there and we're declaring the message of God, that this is the message that we're standing on, not some of the other side issues that are important and come out of this stuff, but this is the message. Um, 1342, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving, the people invited them to speak. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. The whole city is there to hear it. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you Jews reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And this is the turning point of the book of Acts, as everything now is geared towards ministry to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. Side note, they understood who was powerful. <laughs> Let's not say scripture says women don't have power to influence in the world. <laughs> but the Jewish leaders, they incited the God-fearing women of high standing and then the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. They shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Crazy, intense moment as the gospel is taken overseas to the synagogue, and then from there, to, it's going to go out to the ends of the earth. So I want to run through a few slides that, that really we're jumping back to the beginning, and I just want to highlight a few things before we wrap up. Um, and it's this, the church sends. So when you are looking at the beginning of this story, like we started this series preaching about the sending God. That was message number one. We worship a God who sends. As we get to this part of the story, it becomes really clear that the job of the church is to send. The job of the church is not to gather. 
The job of the church is to send. We gather for the purpose of sending. The church sends. At the beginning of the chapter, you've got this progression. People are called, people are set apart, and people are sent. So it says, while they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they'd fasted and they prayed, they placed hands on them and they sent them off. So God had called them to do a particular work. Um, we know from part of the story already that we've looked at that Paul's aware of this calling that God has placed on his life to go to the Gentiles. The church is in a worship and prayer time. They're worshiping, they're praying, they're fasting with intensity. And in the middle of that, Paul doesn't come up and go, I feel called to go to the ends of the earth. Will you send me? The church in the middle of prayer and worship, they know Paul. They know God's heart. They're attentive to what God might want, might want to do. And as they're gathering together, they're hearing God stirring the need to send someone to the ends of the earth. And so the church looks at Paul and Barnabas. God is, we're discerning together that God wants us to send people to, to, to minister. So they start discerning together. Who would it be? Of course, we know it's Paul and Barnabas. We know what God has done in their life. We know the passion and the gifts that they have. So let's respond to God. Let's bring them in. Let's set them apart. Let's declare that they have a unique job to do in the world. Let's lay our hands on them. Let's pray. Let's fast. More prayer and fasting, kind of important. And then they send them off. So this progression, called, set apart, sent. We've got to recover this as a church. What does it look like to discern together the calling of the people sitting in the midst of us? What does it look like to take time and prayer and worship and fasting to set people apart? And what does it look like to be sent? Now, some people in the room, it's going to mean being sent to the other end of the world. But some of us, it means being sent home to minister to your kids. For some of us, it means being sent into school to minister in a classroom. For some of us, it means being sent to our neighbors. But we've got to recover. What's the calling that God is doing in each of us? What are the gifts and the passions and, and what is his heart? And then how do we, are we attentive to one another to be able to identify those things, to hear from God? And then what would it look like for us to take time to set one another apart and to send us to do the work that God's called us to do? We do a lot of time of gathering. We do a lot of time of worshiping and learning, but we don't do enough time preparing people to be sent. When we talk about being called, I think it's important to distinguish three different types of call that are present in Scripture. What does it mean to be called by God? So the first version of being called is called the general call. So the general call to all people to come to God. Romans 1.20 says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen so that all men are without excuse. So God has made himself known, his call is out there through creation to draw people to them. So we're all generally called to God. Um, the second one is the salvation call. There is a specific call that we have to come to Jesus. So all of us in here who follow Christ are called people. Um, Romans 8, 29 and 30, uh, we, we know this well. Um, those who have been called are also justified. Those who are justified are also glorified. Um, th this moment where God calls us to him because of his foreknowledge. And then there's this specific call, Ephesians 2.10, that, that uh, 
We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's a specific work that God prepared in advance for you. Um, and so you have a specific call into that. So, so there's the general call that marks the church has sent people. We got to go out there and communicate through our good works and, and, and our kindness to the world, the general character of God. There's a specific call that we've received to come to Christ that we're sent out into the world to offer to other people, to call them to a salvation response. And then there's a specific call that each of us has. And for some of us, that's a call to professional full-time ministry. Uh, for most of us, it's a call to be out there in the world as husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and employees and bosses ministering in the world. We've got to be attentive. My, my heart for us as a church is that we'd be a place where someone walks in the door and then those of us in the church who are older who have walked this journey, who know your gifts and your calling, can walk alongside them and help them figure out what is the specific call that God has placed on their life. I want this to be a place where people come in the door. Yeah, we gather, we worship, we have fellowship, we learn, but that we're attentive to, to identifying what God wants to do in people, setting them apart, and sending and commissioning people back out into the world. If all we do is gather, then we're missing the point of what God's called us to do. We reflect our sending God by being sending people. We worship a God who sends. It starts at the beginning. He sends his word into the world and everything's created. The spirit hovers over the face of the, the, the deep. He creates man. He sends his breath into man to bring life. He sends Adam and Eve to subdue the earth. He sends Jesus to come and live here. He sends the, the church out into the world. We reflect the sending God by being a sending people. And you know, it doesn't matter how long you've been a part of this church or, or how short a time that you've been a part of this church. By being here means that God has appointed you to be part of the sending agency. So you're here to help identify the gifts of the people in the church and send them out. You are here to be sent out um, as part of this work. Next slide. I, just the, this illustration is something that, that I'm grounded in all of the time when it comes to the work of God. You've got one side of this chart, spiritual formation, which is the process of spending time with Jesus to be transformed to look like him. It's our worship, it's our Bible study, it's our prayer, it's our fellowship, it's our church gatherings, it's the time we spend alone seeking the voice of God and his filling. On the other side of the chart, you've got mission, the sending part of God where we're out in the world doing the things that he's called us to. These two things are like breathing. You breathe in God and his transformation. We, spiritual formation, gathering as the church, this is breathing in. It's what we're doing now. We're absorbing the truth and the presence of God. But at some point, you gotta breathe out. <laughs> Breathing out is mission. It's taking God's presence to the world around about us. Too many churches just take a giant, take a giant exhale and hold it as long as you can, just for fun. Just, okay, here, here's what we're gonna do. We've got time. We're gonna have a competition, right? Everyone who can stand up. This is just fun. Come on, we're in church. If, if, you're if you're able to stand up, I want you to take as deep a breath as you can and hold it. And when you can't hold it anymore, I want you to sit down and I want to see who can hold their breath the longest. Right? So take a deep breath. Three, two, one, go. You can do this if you're watching at home. Uh, you can take a deep breath. And then we'll find out if someone at home can hold their breath longer than all the people in here. 
This is the formational posture of the Western church. We, we come, we breathe in. Feels all right for the first, I don't know, 20 seconds. And all of a sudden, your lungs start to complain against you. You're like struggling. This is uncomfortable. I desperately need an outlet. It's like, help me. I'm hoping there's not like an Olympic breath holder in here that's going to hold their breath for like 20 minutes. Oh, I forced some people to breathe out. Look at that. Sorry. (laughs) No cheating. No like breathing out quietly and then taking a breath so that you can win. We're doing well here. Oh, we're down to two. See if... That's it. Look at each other. (laughs) Feel the burn. (laughs) Well done. Andrew wins. So if anyone at home held their breath longer, they get the prize. Um, But I mean, it's silly. It's fun. But here's the deal. That's the posture that we live in as the church. If you hold your breath, uh, you just breathe in all the time and you never breathe out, you eventually die, right? (laughs) It's what happens to churches. We get in this posture of all I'm doing is I'm just breathing in and breathing in and breathing in and then slowly the church dies. Um, And there's actually this mechanism in breathing when we're struggling to breathe like that. You breathe in like there's a desperation in our body to release that and get fresh air in. Now notice you can't just breathe out. It's not like let's breathe in, breathe in, breathe in and now I can breathe out for the next 10 years, right? (laughs) You have the same issue if you breathe out. If you're engaged in mission, So what happens in this is we sit in the church and we breathe in, we absorb God, we gather, we take as much of him as we can. It's our prayer times, it's the Bible, it's our worship, it's our fellowship, it's encouraging one another, it's awesome. We love being around Christians. And all of a sudden we're filled up, but it's got nowhere to go. And when you're filled up with nowhere to go, it brings death. But on the other side of the equation, you get out there and it's like, okay, I took my breath in, now I'm gonna breathe out, so I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna do mission. Compelled by God, I'm going to go serve at the abortion clinic. I'm going to go minister um, to these people struggling with their sexuality. I'm going to go help the school to know Jesus. We're going to minister on Bentley Street. We're going to help the homeless. And you go out there and you're breathing out and breathing out and breathing out and breathing out. And what happens if you just keep breathing out and you don't come back to the source? You burn out. You eventually keel over. We need both. We need rhythms as church, just like breathing. We're breathing in as we gather together. Then we have outlets out there in the world. We weren't designed for one or the other. But I will tell you this, based on how God wired you and created you, one of these is easier for you than the other. For some of us, we gravitate towards breathing in. And it's like just getting alone and and being in the Word and being around Christians, it's just so fueling. So it takes extra effort and discipline to make sure that we're out there in the world doing the mission of God. But there's some people in here, it's like, just let me out there. Let's stop talking and get out there and act. I'm fed up of the chat without some impact in there. And and those people, to be honest, a lot of those people are not here because they spend all of their time out there. They're like, I'm not interested in gathering with a bunch of Christians on a Sunday. I wanna be with the lost and the broken. And they're out there and they struggle with conventional church. Um, and some of us are, are, are somewhere in between, but we wanna be a church that's breathing in and breathing out. And it means we've got to cultivate rhythms as a community 
of, of sucking in and breathing out. It means we've got to evaluate in ourselves, like, what am I doing to absorb God, and then am I taking it out there into the world? And, you know, a really simple way that, that you can apply this instantly is a basic discipleship principle. Like, you're here, and you're sucking in, and you're learning. So what's the breath out? Who's the first person you're going to teach today what you just learned today? It's the simplest aspect of discipleship. God shared something with me. Now I'm going to go out there and share it with someone else. And I tell you, if you understood what was shared, you'll have great fun sharing it with someone else. If you didn't understand what was said, this is an indictment on me, not on you. If you didn't understand what was said, then trying to share it with someone else is gonna be difficult. And then that's where we come to the word. Let me understand this better. It's when we come together and say, help me to understand this because I tried to share it and I couldn't. Um, But without that outward breath, we're gonna be a church that just gathers and then dies. Here's a question. I put are we, but maybe I should say are you. Are we advancing God's kingdom or maintaining our systems? Are we advancing his kingdom or maintaining our systems? And and that goes on both sides of the fence. Um, Whether you're in the spiritual formation breath in, we can gather together and just try and maintain the system that we love. Um, uh, Rather than getting out there and advancing what God wants to do, we can also do the same when you're out there doing ministry. There are lots of ministries that happen and they're still going even although they're dying and they're damaging people because people are more concerned about maintaining that system than about responding to God and innovating and, and doing what it is that he wants to do that may be new. Um, are we advancing his kingdom or maintaining our systems? So, I mean, Acts, this book is all about being a sent church. Um, so, I, I mean, we're in this process. You have a vital church. We're here. You had church summits. You envisioned some ministries that, that would get us out there and, and engaging in the community. We envisioned some ministries that would bring people in here. COVID hit and sabotaged plans. Um, but we're, we're hitting this point as we come through the summer and into the fall. Like, we need rhythms in place. You need rhythms in place that are going to let you breathe in and then exhale. Um, I am determined that as a church, we're going to be a place where people walk in the door, they connect relationally with him, with one another. You learn the calling that God has placed on your life. You learn the specific work that God has called you to do. And then we come behind you as a church to set you apart and send you out. Not we just send you in, (laughs) bye-bye. Send you out and support and pray and fast with you to see God do the work that he wants to do. Why? So that his kingdom expands and the church grows. Um, So let's not be a church that's that's maintaining the system, but advancing his kingdom. Let me pray. God, in many senses, these truths and acts are so elementary. Like, there's not a single person walked in the room today that doesn't understand that God sends his church. Um, There's not a single person that doesn't have the concept in in their mind that God has a a calling on our lives that we're supposed to walk into and do. But for some reason, we fail to step into those things. For some reason, we fail uh, to, to respond to your spirit and get out there into the world. And so, God, what we need is, is your sending spirit to fill us afresh. God, as we breathe in, fill us with your sending spirit. 
God, fill us with your word. And I pray that, that out of grace, you would cause our lungs to burn in a way that forces us out into the world round about us. God, would you help us to be people who take your word and share it? God, would you give us the boldness to declare your truth to the people round about? God, would you give us a sense of urgency and a sense of necessity and a sense of responsibility to be your agents out in the world there? Um, God, the forgiveness that you offer is miraculous. Intimacy with you is life-changing, and there is nothing like it. And yet we tend to hold on to it uh, when there's a world out there whose, whose lungs are burning, desperate for your breath to be poured into their life. So God, make us a sending church. But that starts by each one of us grasping our role in sending the people around about us. So God, in, it's always much nicer where we can do things one at a time. But God, as I, I think about this room full of people, I just want to set us apart. God, there's been a lot of prayer here. There's been a lot of fasting. There's been a lot of discerning and soul searching. And we know we need to get out of these walls to do the work that you've called us to do. Uh, so God, I, I, I set these people apart to be sent to raise their kids in Christ, uh, to manage projects to the glory of God, uh, to reach out to neighbors with the gospel of hope, uh, to, to see colleagues rescued from darkness to light, to fight against injustice and brokenness in order that your kingdom would be advanced. So God, uh, move in us. Give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the boldness to go. In Jesus' name.